This is from Justin McCain, a podcast where Mike Robertson and Bob LaRue watch one critically acclaimed film and one terrible film and talk about how they are the same. everybody welcome to um from justin to kane the only podcast with the from justin to kelly and citizen kane in the title yeah the only one the only one that references both of those films dare you to make a competing podcast with the same title yes i I beseech thee (laughs) wow so articulate thank you so articulate that's amazing (laughs) what do we do this time mike this week we were watching fitzcarraldo by Werner Herzog. It's Werner Herzog. Werner Herzog. Mm-hmm. And uh, Christmas in Wonderland from James Orr. It was the director. Yeah. 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 So. Yeah, they were a doozy. They were both a lot to take in. Both long, too. Yeah, both both long. Mm-hmm. Christmas in Wonderland was, I think, a crisp one, one hour and 36 minutes. But oh. It felt like. Like at the 45 minute mark, I was just like, this feels longer than like the entirety of Fitzcarraldo for me, at least. <laughs> but I had the opposite. Fitzcarraldo felt like a two, two hour and 39 minute movie. Yes, it did. And Christmas in Wonderland played very well, but I think I have a sweet spot for sort of shitty, uh, wholesome Christmas films. Yes. Especially with Swayze in it. Yes. Swayze? Swayze. Swayze? Swayze. It's Swayze? Swayze. Yeah, you know, Patrick Swayze from Roadhouse. Swayze? Yeah, the roundhouse Swayze kick. Swayze, it's Swayze. I'm so sorry. So, as you know, in this podcast, we talk about movies. One of them is considered a terrible film, universally, and one of them is regarded as a great film, universally. Yes. So, that's what we did for these movies. I, and I think... Uh, Christmas in Wonderland, kind of a dark horse pick, maybe. Is that the proper use of that phrase? Uh, keep talking. We'll figure it out if you use it correctly. (laughs) (laughs) Just like, who the hell knows what this movie is? Because this is the equivalent. It's basically just like a Hallmark Christmas movie. Uh, although apparently it was never intended to be. It wasn't. That was an afterthought. Yeah. That they 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 just gave it to cable because they realized it was a flaming hot pile of. Yeah. Garbage. Cinematic trash. So, yeah. So picking it kind of just, just like, well, you couldn't have picked a more obscure movie in a way. But it's just we, like, we is also it bad have if a it's bias. obscure? We also have a bias. We also have a bias. For two different reasons. Yes. One being the film was filmed and takes place in the city we both reside in. And we are recording this podcast in right now. Yeah. Which is very snowy. Very, it's a very snowy. snowy day. Yeah. Considering it's not snowy season yet. The f- Parts of this movie were filmed not far from where we were recording. No, actually, it was, it's pretty close. Yeah. 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 And also, I worked on this movie. Yeah. As a film person, this was my first gig, like my first major gig, but also my first actual just like straight up gig where it wasn't just me and a friend like dicking around with like a video camera. It was yeah. like, this was like a big budget thing. And I was a PA on this film for four months because it was... Filmed in, oh, maybe it wasn't four months, but it felt like forever. 
They filmed it over like the entire summer, like almost. I'm like, sure that was three three months at least. You're, you're gonna have insights into this film later, which are gonna be very valuable. Uh, which movie do you want to start off with? Okay, well, let's just give some context. I can talk about Fitzcarraldo. Okay, and then I'll uh, talk about Christmas in Wonderland. So the first film we're talking about is Fitzcarraldo, made in 1982, directed by Werner Herzog. Lots of troubles on set. Uh, Mick Jagger was supposed to be in it. Really? Yeah. Okay. And, oh, Jason Robards. Really? Mick Jagger and Jason Robards? I don't know who Jason Robards is. I probably would recognize him if I saw him, but... I might be thinking of the wrong person. It doesn't matter. Fitzcarraldo is about a eccentric rubber baron who named Fitzcarraldo, uh, who is like, I love opera. For some reason, I am going to build an opera house in the middle of the Amazon. Uh, and in order to like kind of scope out the location, I'm going to take my boat there. So I'm going to like take my boat over this mountain that's in the middle of the Amazon so I don't have to go through the rapids. But in order to do that, I'm going to have to hire hundreds and hundreds of the indigenous people of the region in Peru. He's like, yeah, we're going to put an opera house in the Amazon. And then he's like, no, no, we're getting uh, rubber. How does the opera house play into that? Because he very clearly, he like laid out his game plan after they had already reached that pinch point in the river. Mm -hmm. And he was like, actually, we're getting rubber. Was his intention still at that point to open the theater? I think he just, yeah. Or I think was so. he was he trying to get money? Uh, to hear Werner, to hear Werner talk, tell it is like it's. It was always about the guy who wanted to make the opera house in the Amazon. It's just kind of about just the unquenchable dream, mm-hmm. even yeah. if the dream is really stupid and doesn't make sense on any level. Yeah. Uh, it's also just kind of about wealth and how that kind of warps the brain a little bit. Although I don't know that they were really critical of that in the film but more just that you can be a weird rich eccentric guy and be like i want to do this dumb thing because i can and then you just do it and then that's the end of the film yeah so uh some fun facts about there's way too much fun facts about this movie so much that there's a book that werner herzog wrote where he just took his journals called the conquest of the useless uh because he with that title he was commenting on the very project itself just that He's kind of like a master of the useless, just being like making a movie about a guy putting a boat over a mountain. It's just like, what more useless task is that? Um, and then the, also there's a documentary called Burden of Dreams made about the film. There's just so much stuff about this movie. There's a lot of lore. There's a lot of wild lore. Yeah. So here's a few bits of lore. Uh, they filmed it for six weeks. Then Jason Robards got sick. And Mick Jagger was also in it, and he was playing his, like, Shakespeare-quoting sidekick. Mm. Jason Robards got sick, and then he left, and then they put it on pause for a couple weeks, and then they were like, he's too sick to come back to the Amazon. So Werner Herzog was like, well, I'll just start filming this again. So he started over, put his old friend Klaus Kinski, who's in all these, like, Werner Herzog movies, and they started filming it again, and they cut Mick Jagger's character, because Mick Jagger also was like, I'm in the Rolling Stones. I got to go back on tour. So he did. That was just like, (laughs) that was a sound clip that we we used. That wasn't just me doing an impression. No, yeah, it was actually Mick Jagger. Some fascinating parts that speak to Werner Herzog's character, I think, is they started, he funded the film with his own money for the first like couple weeks of like Mm -hmm. pre-production. Because he's like, we have to build this boat 
Uh, and then once the people see that the boat's being built, they'll think other people are funding it. So they'll give us money. And he got money based on the fact that he started building a gigantic boat. Really? Oh, it worked. Yeah, it, it was like some weird trick that worked where they're just like, oh, this movie must be a big deal if they've already started like building this boat and he's just trying to get more money from other people. What when in fact, he hadn't room. gotten money from anybody. Wow. Yeah. And it's, okay, this movie's also based on a real story of a guy named Carlos Fitzcarraldt who did something not too different from this, and he disassembled a boat and and brought it over top of a mountain and then reassembled it on the other side. <laughs> but it was the same kind of like mountain area. Okay, cool. Uh, they built two different boats to shoot, one that they kept on the mountain to do all the mountain shots, and then one that was in the water the entire time. Mm, smart. So that's kind of a cool fact. Uh, after the Jason Robards thing happened and he was... Before he decided Klaus Kinski was it the main character, Werner Herzog himself almost played it. He almost was really? going to be Fitzcarraldo. though. Yeah, he was oh. almost going to star in his own movie. And then, and what a I, power trip that would be. Yeah, I read an interview with him where he talked about it, and he was he's like, I wouldn't have done a bad job. He's because <laughs> he's just like the 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 character of Fitzcarraldo and the director of Fitzcarraldo are very similar. Mm-hmm. They're the same person. Yeah. They have so the same like, audacious plan, basically. Yes. Yeah. Um, also, a lot of controversy about this movie at the time was that people just thought that he was abusing the indigenous population for this movie when, in fact, he was paying them very handsomely. It was just a conspiracy theory that was happening at the time because there was a border war happening between Peru and Ecuador. And so there was a lot of stuff going on in the region. And so they were just trying to find a scapegoat. And so Werner Herzog's weird-ass movie that was being made in the middle of all this was just like an easy scapegoat for them. So he was blamed a lot in the press. There's also a part in the movie where people got crushed by the boat and people were convinced that people had actually died uh, when that didn't actually happen. And there's apparently footage you can find in the Burden of Dreams movie, I think it's in, where uh, you see the people getting up from under the boat and having a laugh. <laughs> I but, love that. But then Werner Herzog was quoted as just saying that he didn't really want to correct people because he just liked that there was someone who thought he was audacious enough to kill people for a movie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so that is like great PR on one front. Oh yeah. You know, like and also that really serves to the integrity of that film. Yeah. People were like, that's real. Yeah. That actually happened. Those people got crushed by that boat. Well, the movie's That's kinda, amazing. The movie's kind of long and boring half the time, but then there's some unbelievable stuff that happens in the movie. Oh like yeah, the part where the boat's going through the rapids. Like oh that's, yeah, that's wild. You just see the boat kind of like tip over, and you're just like, they actually just filmed that. Supposedly, when they filmed that, they filmed it, and then they were like, that didn't look too bad, and then they did it again from on the boat. Oh shit! Yeah, they're like, that didn't look too bad, so they got on the boat and did it. <laughs> oh my god! And uh, that's so dangerous. According to lore, they strapped the camera guys down to the boat so that they wouldn't get like fly off. <laughs> one of them like hit his head on the camera and concussed himself. Oh my god! And then one of the cameras, the, apparently the lens just came right out of it and shot out like a cannon. Oh. Jeez. And then there was another story where they had a uh, another cameraman who was sitting on the rocks. And then they were just so exhausted that they left. And then they forgot that they left him on these rocks. Oh, no. So he, they came back the next morning and he was still there. And then <laughs> later that guy's toes got, the top of his toes got bit off by a piranha. Wow. Yeah. So that all kind of happened like in the same like, couple of days. It was probably a wild couple of days. When they brought the boat over the top of the mountain, they actually did it. Which is oh, pretty wild. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, they just built 
the 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 one boat that was sturdy enough to like get over the top to get pulled up a mountain without falling apart. So they actually did it. Like all the stuff that you see in the movie actually is happening. It's not like camera tricks. Oh wow. But then once it gets to the top of the mountain, there was some sort of like production issue. So they left the boat there for like six months. Oh really? Yeah. That's interesting. So there's like we there's like huge gaps in the making of this film. Oh yeah. And then also Werner Herzog was supposedly uh they attempted to try him in a German tribunal for torturing the native people. What? Yeah. But he but, didn't. But he didn't get tried. Yeah, it didn't work out. Because he mean, didn't do anything. Yeah, man. But what great pu- publicity for this movie. Yeah. Like, that's that's bonkers. Yeah, there's lots and lots Ooh. of wild stories. I probably said way too many, but... No, but there's so many. What what a rich film with lore and backstory and sort of the context of how it was made. It's so crazy. Versus Christmas in Wonderland? Pretty run-of-the-mill. Well, what do you do you got something to say about Christmas in Wonderland? I got four things to say about Christmas in Wonderland. Um, yeah, so Christmas in Wonderland was re- released the- theatrically in Canada in 2007, and then in 2008 in the States, instead of releasing it theatrically, they just released it with ABC's 25 Days of Christmas. Mm-hmm. Also, just like another means of distributing, trying to re- like make your money back on a hot pile of garbage of a movie. I would actually say that those methods are probably more profitable in the long run. They're from, consistent from too. Movies than, than just putting it in the theater for like a couple of weeks. Oh yeah, for sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, TV runs and stuff and like, yeah, that's how they make royalties for like decades later. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's pretty crazy. Anywho, so 2008 it came out. It did not make any money at all. I mean, it was a flop. Oh Yeah. Uh, but what a what a ride. So it was filmed in Edmonton, Alberta, and the film takes place in Edmonton, Alberta, the mall, West Edmonton Mall, which Mike pointed out at a certain point earlier. He was like, it's interesting that they sort of built this whole film around a mall, and it's the largest mall in North America at the time, or like it was at one point in history, the largest mall in North America. It no longer is. But it's like, oh, cool, we should make this movie about this giant mall. And then they never talk about it as being an anomaly in malls. Yeah. And like how big it is, its location. They never bring that up. They just, it just takes place in the mall and they never really talk about it. Yeah. When they're like, let's go shopping. Yeah. You know, like, let's go to West Edmonton Mall, the, the largest, the largest mall. mall. And they just happen to go to West Edmonton Mall. Yeah. It just plays out like that. It's weird. Go to Southgate, Patrick Swayze. Go it, to Southgate. Yeah. It would be less busy Chris like, on not Christmas it. Eve. Yeah. 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 Also, it's, takes place on Christmas Eve. Uh, what a wild ride. Okay. the So one thing about the mall was it was filmed in the summer, as Mike said, because that's when he worked on it. Mm-hmm. They left the decorations up. So the, all the decorations in the movie, for the most part, I'm sure is augmented by the production, but all the like major decoration pieces were just the malls. So they Christmas happened in December. They just left them up for January, February, March, and April. And then they started filming. So all the like locals were like, why are all the uh, decorations still up? And there's like a big stink. And like even um, a local like news channel had to uh, investigate and be like, why, why did you leave these up? And then eventually West Ed was like, oh, we're filming a movie. So I'm sure that would have been perplexing at the time to be like, oh, interesting that they left, left the thing on. Did they leave them up the rest of the year? No, I'm sure as soon as the movie wrapped, they took it down and then put it back up. Uh, two months later uh, for yeah, Christmas. Yeah. yeah. I'm sure that's what they did. Probably, yeah. 
Um, so, so that's kind of an interesting thing. Ray Liotta and Leslie Nielsen were originally going to be in the film. I don't know as what role or roles they were they were going to have, but they were supposed to be in it originally, and that would have been awesome. But uh, I, they weren't. If I had to guess, I'd say Patrick Swayze's character was probably Ray Liotta. Oh yeah, and, and then Leslie Nielsen, Leslie Nielsen was, Nielsen the, was uh, the cop. Yeah, the Mountie, or alternately, or the Santa. Oh but yeah, I, but I would probably say it was probably the police. Santa's officer. a small role in that film. Yeah, yeah. Leslie Nielsen's worth having around for more screen time. So, anyways, that happened, and it's directed by uh, James Orr, whose credits include uh, Mr. Destiny, Mr. Destiny. Uh, what was the other one? Man of the House, Man of the House, and also wrote and produced. Three dudes and a baby. What's that? Three, movie little, called? three men and a baby. Three men and a These baby. These are all movies that I saw when I was very young. I wasn't born yet. You weren't born yet when this yeah. happened. Yeah. So James Orr. Uh, yeah. And that was his. His films were the movies that were foisted upon me as a child. Oh really? Your parents yeah. were like, "You, Mike, watch this." Yeah. Uh, yeah. I wish that they were like, "Watch this Werner Herzog movie," but they didn't. They were like, "No, no. you should watch." Man of the House. Walt yeah. Disney's Man of the House with Chevy Chase and Jonathan Taylor Thomas. They didn't say, watch Aguirre, the Wrath of God. <laughs> what if they did, though? What if they did? That's kind of what the, my parents did. Uh, are all those, are, is that all your, the research you did? Oh, yeah, that's it. That's, that's <laughs> those, those were some interesting facts. Definitely not as interesting as the fact that there were, there were some uh, a neighboring tribe of indigenous people to the f- Amazon forest who found out about the production and they f- launched arrows at the crew. What? Yeah, and st- one person got was put into critical condition and because they got <laughs> shot in the the leg and the neck. <laughs> oh my god, that's uh, brutal. And some of the extras, of which there were seven hundred. Oh my god, the seven hundred Peruvian like. I don't know, people who lived in that region, I can't remember what they were called, but uh, some of them had to just like take a shift off of working on the movie to go like battle these these other guys. Wow. <laughs> yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Oh my gosh. What well, a yeah, wild, you know, wild But you time. had some really interesting facts. Yeah, you know what, Mike? <laughs> you worked on Christmas in Wonderland. You know how interesting it was. It was pretty I mean, run of the mill, wasn't it? It's pretty run in the mail. You got any any little behind the scenes uh, stuff I mean, to add? I have a few that are based that are that we can get to when it comes to the similarities. Oh, okay. But cool. for the most part, it was like, I can tell you some set stories of which there are very few interesting ones. Yeah, I'm sure. Yeah, I want to hear them. Okay, a lot of the time, everybody was like, is Chris Kattan high? <laughs> and nobody really like solidified that as a fact, but everybody was pretty sure he was high on right. something pretty much all the time. Okay, cool. Um, also... Uh, Tim Curry, supposedly one of my production assistant friends was had a sandwich in his hand. Tim Curry walked over to him without saying a single word, <laughs> didn't break eye contact, <laughs> kneeled down, took a bite out of his sandwich, and then went back to his business. <laughs> Apparently, Tim Curry was like the most fun to hang out with and joke around with on set. Mischievous man. He's like, ah, I'm getting paid well enough. I don't need to take myself seriously. Yeah. Interesting. That's yeah, really cool. He just seems like, sounds amazing. When you watch the movie, he also seems like he's the only one having fun. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Patrick Swayze. I did talk to him briefly. Oh, cool. He was very nice. Yeah. He was always smoking. Oh, interesting. Uh, like he was smoking like a chimney every time I saw him. In 2007, then, could you smoke in the mall? 
Mm, I don't remember. Oh, okay. I don't know. I don't think so. Okay. Interesting. I think you could only smoke in bars back then. But uh, he uh, later died of cancer. I don't think it was of the lung variety though. But no. that was just like shortly, shortly after while we were making this movie. I think while we were making this movie, it was announced that he had some sort of uh, deadly cancer. Really? Yeah. And then he died shortly after. So oh. this wasn't his last movie, I don't think. But while we were on set, he had been talking about how he really wanted to make Roadhouse 2. Really? And everybody on all the dudes in the crew, of which was mostly the crew was just dudes. Yeah. Was just like, yeah, Roadhouse 2. Sweet. This is going to be great. Nice. I love that. Uh, and then also, my name does not appear in the credits. <laughs> uh, I was one of a small group of production assistants. But in the movie credits, if you look... My name is not listed, but the name Ted Stenson is listed twice. <laughs> and my name is absent where it should go, and Ted Stenson's name is listed twice. But he did a great job on the movie, so maybe he deserves it. I don't know. He was also a lot of fun to hang out with. Cool, cool. Uh, other set stories include me guarding a garbage can, <laughs> me guarding all of the gear. If you're familiar with West Edmonton Mall, outside of where the HMV used to be, under the movie theater it's mm-hmm. like this giant place where they usually do like the worst fashion shows yeah and now it's like a farmer's market almost yeah kind of yeah. but back then they that's where they stored everything oh interesting so there's a few times when i got super bored and after my phone died and i would look around and well i can leave this stuff unattended so i ran into the chapters next door and just would buy a book so i could read a book oh wow so i put my own job in danger and people could have stole stuff but nobody did because nobody cared yeah yeah uh, also one more set story on the last day, we really pushed it and we did like just the most overtime you could do. Cause they didn't want to shoot their shoot anymore. So they're just like, we're just going to keep going until we get everything we need. Oh, wow. So my job that day was guarding a door. I think <laughs> just Classic. making sure people didn't come through and, uh, but they would just send everybody to like, go have lunch, you know, one at a time. So me and Ted Stenson, whose name is listed twice in the credits and my name is not listed once, got to go into like a golf cart and just rip around the parking lot of West Edmonton Mall. And it was like cool. empty for some reason. And then we went to Circus, the the tents where all the food is stored. And they gave us a lobster dinner. What? So we got a private lobster dinner. This is what everybody is having, but because we were the only ones eating at the time because they were just sending out people one, at, one a time. at a time so that they could just keep the movie shooting. Yeah. So we got like... That was like a great last day. Just like the sun was setting. It was beautiful. We were just ripping around in a golf cart. Oh, And then I got to eat a lobster dinner while this, they were making this just God awful film. <laughs> yeah. I love that. Yeah. I, I heard, uh, yeah. Somebody told me working on that movie. They're like one day we went into meal penalty. We weren't shooting and we were shooting in the food court. So everyone just ate anyways. Yeah. So they got paid way over time plus meal penalties and they, they ate, they yeah. ate food. So it was just like a, a producer's hell and a crew member's heaven. I also met one of the producers of the film from Vancouver. Oh. And he looked, or maybe he might have been from LA, but he looked the most like producery. Oh, really? Like sunglasses, like, leather jacket? Uh, no, sunglasses, leather skin. Like he oh. was like super tanned. And, oh, like, interesting. His skin was really leathery. His hair was like whitey gray. Mm. And he was wearing like the hempiest shirt you could wear. It's Classic. So, so thin, so soft. Yeah. So well, So expensive. Yeah. And he didn't seem terribly concerned with just how over budget this movie was going. Yeah. Because he knew ABC would pick it up. 
Yeah, he probably thought they were making something pretty good. Yeah. I knew it as we were making the film that it was bad. How did you know that, Mike? Uh, I just could tell. <laughs> and my first day of shooting was the day they filmed the part where the motorcycle goes through the glass. Oh, cool. But I was nowhere near there. I was like... <laughs> You're guarding gear far, I was far guarding away. a gear, telling people to not walk over there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Classic. So... Crowd control, fire watch. Yeah, Classic man. gig, man. It happens. I mean, those are... I probably have more stories, but those are the only ones I can remember. And honestly, I had like, such a great time on that movie. Yeah. It was like a pretty fun experience. And I met a lot of great people. And we were making crap. But rarely have I worked on like a production in town where it's, I'm not just making crap. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the general consensus for most people. Yeah. It's yeah. like, if it's a production from out of town, odds are you're making something crappy. <laughs> but it's fun. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's fun. Meet, meet people, work long days, make some money. It's great, yeah, man. Should we get into the similarities between these two milestones in cinematic history? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Can we? No, I just need to say briefly. I don't know what the causation is, but the animation in this film in A Christmas in Wonderland is so jarring and disturbing. I don't understand how it happened. There's a shot of Patrick Swayze rolling up to the mall and it's a nice close up on him and it dollies in and he's looking really sentimental. And then the reverse shot is the mall. And they cut out everything except for the door and animated this like clownish food fight-esque in style animated mm -hmm. exterior of the mall with like airplanes flying over it and a bunch of crazy stuff. And it does not fit no. at all. And then there's another scene where they're in the basement and somebody's like, don't go in that door. And the kid's like, huh, it's 2007 and I'm wearing nice clothes. I'm going to open the door. He opens the door. What does he see but five freaky animated elves working in the North Pole? Yeah. And they stop and look at him and give him a, a killer's smile. Yeah. Yeah, like what a serial killer would <laughs> smile at you like before they murder you. Yeah. And then he just shuts it. And he, and he acts like it was normal. Like yeah. It wasn't terrible animation. No. That it was like part of his reality. Yeah. I that that alone makes those the the film bad like just yeah. like te technically insufficient but also just everything else about it is just wild anyways i just had to bring that up because i forgot about it but like holy smokes yeah what it's a wild jarring ride. it's yeah. jarring i found i had a visceral react like i was disturbed i felt ill and also those names are in the credits like the people who did the animation they oh, really they put their names in the credits they're proud of the work yeah we finished it Guys, those you gave guys. us three days to animate this. Check it out. We did it. Those guys got credited and I didn't. Yeah, but some Question. guy did twice. I know. How dare he, even though he's nice and he worked really hard on that movie. I just want to point out also on the IMDP page for this. <laughs> <laughs> all the, the people, some of the PAs who only were there for one day got credited on IMDB. I didn't get credited on IMDB. You could put yourself on it. I mean, I'm if on IMDB, IMDB Pro. I'm on IMDB 10 times over. Every time I do a project, someone starts a new IMDb page for me. There's oh, really? not a single page that has all of my credits in one spot. That's not good. It's terrible. Yeah, so I just gave up on IMDb. I'm like, I can't use this. So you, wow, it's like a major networking thing for people. It's, too. In, it's also impossible to to get them to change it. Interesting. If you send them an email and be like, "Hey, can you make all of these changes and go through their system?" They won't let you. I mean, they will do it probably, but 
they just it just hasn't happened and i've I've done it several times over multiple years that's so weird and they've never consolidated them into one name (laughs) they all say the same name there's Uh, well there's like 20 or 30 mike robertson's out there yeah and just as many michael robertson's so it's like what a hell all right so let's let's dive into these two films when one of these movies will expose or illuminate something of the other and vice versa all right, this first one, very superficial, but I'm going to say it anyways. Yes. Both films have a character who is old and bearded and seems wise. So there's like a Protestant or some sort of like minister in Peru who like welcomes Klaus Kinski and his yes. gang. And then Santa in A Christmas in Wonderland. Yes. And they both seem like they have like advice and sort of wise and like they're also uh, where they shouldn't be. You know, mm. like a priest in the middle of the Amazon doesn't make any sense. And Santa in Edmonton, Alberta doesn't make any sense either. I forgot so that's about the that first, first uh, similarity. That's a great one. What Thank else you. do you got? Uh, a journey was taken in both films. So uh, there's okay. a, a destination <laughs> and a journey. So in A Christmas in Wonderland, the family flies from LA to Edmonton, Alberta. Mm-hmm. Um, and in uh, Fitzcarraldo, uh, there's a journey down the river. That's right. Yeah. So both, both, and, and both journeys are challenging and there's sort of a, a hurdle that has to be overcome. And the yeah. major hurdle seems to be like at the end of it. So like, you know, in Fitzcarraldo, it's like they get to the end of that pinch point and he's like, okay, now we need to take the boat and put it over the hump. And everyone's like, are you crazy? And then in, um, uh, Edmonton, Alberta, Patrick Swayze is the only one who wants to be in Edmonton. Everyone else is like, you're yeah. done. This sucks. I don't want to be here. Look at this U-Haul trailer that they put in the shot in front of this house. Yeah, there's a lot of smack talk about Edmonton. Yeah, the characters, how people feel about Edmonton in that film or how locals feel about Edmonton now. Yeah. A lot of the time. But it's it's wild just how much they smack talk the city. They smack talk it like crazy. I'm they, sure on yeah. set, all the like non-Edmonton crew are just like, this place? No. And it's like Peru, they don't want to be there either. No, they don't. But they they do in a way because I guess I guess they got to build a, a opera house for some reason. Yeah. Also, on that note, opera house in the middle of the Amazon just it's like a monument uh, to hubris. Yes, I would describe West Edmonton all the same way. <laughs> yeah, built in three phases, starting in the <laughs> late seventies. Yeah. That mall, that mall was a major endeavor, both financially and uh, sort of structurally. And watching both films. I was struck with just moments of incredulity because in Fitzcarraldo, there was so many moments like when the boat's going down the river or when they're actually pulling the boat over the mountain, mm-hmm. you're just like, I can't believe I'm watching this. Yeah. This is pretty wild. The audacity and all that. Same thing with when I was watching Christmas in Wonderland, just like they go to all the parts in the mall. They go on top of the mall. They go into the aquarium. They go to the sea lion place. They go to the, the, the water park. They go to the amusement park. I'm floored by how much crap is in this mall. And <laughs> seeing it in like a movie that. form is impressive. So I can imagine that was the pitch for the film. It's like, can you believe this mall? We're going to go there. We're going to make a movie there. And then when they did, it wasn't good and nobody cared. <laughs> but you can see why they thought it would have been interesting. Yeah. And like the, the, the ideas there, I guess. Yeah. Especially if you're like, it's a holiday film, blah, blah, blah. That's that's interesting in and of itself. But yeah, uh, in both movies, early on in the film, we are introduced uh, to a giant boat 
yes. that will be placed in a region that it shall not go. That being the Amazon and West Edmonton Mall. Mall. Yeah. yeah. Both both based films, question mark? I, I have a question. Was mm-hmm. Klaus Kinski a drug addict or just crazy? Uh, I feel like he was an alcoholic. If so we, he had if some had sort of pick. substance Oh, he had issue. to so, I did see my best fiend, the documentary about him that Werner Herzog made. Right. And I don't remember. It's been so long. But, since but there was some, some sort of substance issue. Oh, yeah, probably. So, so uh, this is based on hearsay, but I would say similarity from the behind the scenes aspect is that both films had a major character who was dealing with substance yeah. of some kind while mid, middle of the production. Oh, I bet. Yeah. yeah so uh, Kinski and then uh, Katan. And they also yeah. both have K sounding oh, names. Oh, wow. Both alliteration names. Both alliteration. Kinski, Chris Katan. Bada bing, bada boom. They're also both <laughs> very funny in both movies. <laughs> yeah, Chris Katan <laughs> is wasted in this film. Yeah. He is a funny man when he was on SNL. He did some great stuff. Yeah, he did some great bits. But uh, also... For whatever reason, he makes these movies in Edmonton all the time. He, is he? It, he's, there's a movie called Santa's Sleigh, which was filmed shortly before this, I think in 2005 or four or something like that, which is the wrestler Goldberg from WW whatever, E or F or whatever it was at the time. He plays Santa Claus as like a person who murders people for some reason. Oh, cool. And Chris Kattan is in that movie also. They filmed most of it around like East Glen School here wow. in town. Yeah. And it's bad. Also bad. Uh, I wish, so bad. I wish they were still making that stuff. Uh, yeah. So fun. So low stress, you know? Oh, yeah. I know. I know. Why Why make the Avengers when you can make Santa's sleigh too, you know? Uh, yeah, you're right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, that was an abysmal film. Uh, also, the directors of both films kind of have a reputation for being crazed on set. Oh, really? Yes. Werner Herzog, of course, was accused of uh, either letting people die in the movie or just putting his crew and cast into like impossible situations and just forcing them to do stuff. Mm-hmm. He was regarded as a madman at the time this movie was made. Uh, and in Christmas in Wonderland, uh, on more than one instance, the director made the acting children cry multiple times. Really? Because he forced them to do like the stupid montage scene where they had to like put up there's like multiple montages in the film where they're just trying on clothes yeah there was two twins uh which seems redundant as i say it there was <laughs> some twins in the film who played the little girl well they were twins yeah and what they, a what a that's a good way to work around the minors like eight hour limit mm-hmm. rule on set that's really smart yeah so one of the one of the kids cried or maybe both of them at some point and he was just like with a blowhorn. He was like, I don't care. Let's go. Yeah, they were, they were crying because he was forcing them to like do this stupid, stupid scene like for so long. And the montage, like when they're in the gap or whatever that clothing store is and the brother's just like on his uh, uh, PSP or whatever it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, like so boring. I can imagine like that being grueling to film for everyone. Oh, yeah. Uh, especially the talent, but. In the film, it's so fast and so pointless. It's uninspired. What's the like least amount of imagination you can put into <laughs> filming something? And they did. And the kids don't seem like they're having fun doing it. They're, they, I'm sure they didn't. I think you had the more fun than anyone else on that. Oh, movie. I definitely had more fun than the people acting in it. Yeah, those kids. Yeah, they really didn't seem like they're having a good time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then also, and you can see it in the film too. Like they're just the dead eyes. The little girl. Yeah. 
she's not a great actor, or they're not great actors, those twins. Mm -hmm. They don't have to be because they're like, what, four or five or however old they are? Super young. They were pretty young. But then also, you can see it in their face that they're, they do not know how to act or what they're, what they're even doing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Plus. But that, that child is like the main character in the, of the film in a way. She is. She, she instigates everything. She solves the problem. Yeah. She does everything. It's actually really bizarre. What's also interesting is like, this is a Patrick Swayze movie and he's like not in it very yeah. much. He's in it as much as Santa is in it. And he was there the whole time. It's not like he there was. Is. It's not like he flew back to LA like a lot. I'm sure there were more scenes with him and they cut them. Probably. They could have made it more Patrick Swayze based, but they didn't. Interesting. Yeah. He was there just for exposition, basically. Yeah. Yeah. It was wild. Another similarity between these two films is the the two like male protagonists. I'll, I'll deem Patrick Swayze the male protagonist of this film of Christmas in Wonderland. He... Um, his romantic partner is not near where all the action takes place. And Klaus Kinski's character has the same thing. So his, his uh, sort of romantic interest who owns the like brothel, uh, she's like not in the movie very much. She like pays money and she's obviously very smart and kind of tells him what to do. But she's not in it. Most of it's just like Klaus Kinski on the river on a boat with his crew. That is true. So both films sort of, sort of have that like character dynamic in the plot. Of like this removed, strong, like arguably very smart female character who's just not in the movie very much. No. But is also the romantic partner of the male lead. Yeah. Yeah. And when they show up, they're, they marvel at what the male lead did. Yes. Yeah. So it's like Klaus Kinski is like, oh, look at all these people singing on this boat. And she's like, wow, I can't believe this is happening. And yeah. then in the other movie, it's like, look at all the presents in Turkey that you made. Yeah, all the basic like partnership dad stuff that you did. Both movies involve large bodies of water get yes this. okay so the amazon river and Fitzcarraldo and west edmonton mall water park lots of water there so much water so much water nothing but also both of those bodies of water are filled with terrifying creatures either, Go on. either just like the citizens of this city and their bacteria fleshy bodies yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or yes. alternately West Edmonton Mall is known for having a bad cockroach population in the water park. Oh, yeah. That's so very like, famous. It would be very disturbing to be swimming there and encounter that, just as you would, you know, a piranha in the Amazon. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Those two notes are ones that I also had. Oh, interesting. interesting. similarities, yeah. Both films have abysmal ADR. If you watch the English dub of the film, mm -hmm. of yeah. Fitzcarraldo, it's unbelievable that they also, filmed it, it all in English. Also, in English. Yeah. I can imagine they just had a lot of really bad location sound, so... Werner Herzog was like, let's just redub the whole thing. And also, whenever there was ADR in Christmas at Wonderland, it was really bad. Yeah. Although half the time I couldn't tell if it was just bad ADR or if they were bad acting on the day. Because mm -hmm. the kids in that movie, I feel really, really bad I'm ripping on this, my former coworker. <laughs> <laughs> oh, in both films, a choir is present. And where in Christmas in Wonderland is that? When again? they're waiting to meet with Santa. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And then yeah. the choir is there and then they disappear. And then yeah. later, when they're on the boat in Fitzcarraldo, there's a choir. So yes. that's like a, that's a deep cut similarity. That's a real, you want, you want like, another deep cut? Both movies feature ice. This yes. Skating rink in Christmas of Wonderland. And then in uh, Fitzcarraldo, he like makes ice and tries to sell it. And everyone laughs at him. Actually, I would say both films feature ice where ice should not be. Yes, totally, totally. Because that ice in, it shouldn't be in the Amazon. And they both They've never feature seen artificial ice. Yeah. Yeah. And characters don't know what to do with it. So like 
characters don't know what to do with the ice and Fitzcarraldo and they're like you can't sell this like it's the Amazon for crying out loud blah 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 and in uh, Christmas Wonderland Chris Kattan and his sidekick cannot stand up straight they cannot the ice. Yeah. They, they biff it constantly I would point that it's unfunny but oh 100% none, nonetheless they do it nothing is worse than like a very clear attempt at physical comedy <laughs> like yeah. unnatural physical comedy yeah. Actually, in both films, when Ice is present, it's kind of like the central motivating moment of the film. Yes. It's like when the plot kicks in, because right shortly after he introduces Ice to the, the chief, uh, that's when that guy agrees to be like, yeah, we'll help you move your boat over the, the mountain. Yeah. yeah. And that was also when they lost the money. Yeah. Ice, Ice, for some reason, carries some sort of symbolic weight in, dare I say, all of cinema based on just these two samples. <laughs> <laughs> is there Ice in every movie? Probably, you just haven't noticed it. If, 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 you, if you get into it, if there's a fridge in the movie, there's ice. Yeah, and something important is happening near that ice. Kitchen sink dramas, man. There's ice in all those yeah, all those scenes. Totally. And people get drinks, you know, like, they're like, oh, let's go to this club and get this drink. It's like, there's probably ice in that drink. Yeah. And if not, there's ice in that bar. So. In the vanilla ice feature film, Cool as Ice, ice is present constantly. Yeah. And, and that, interesting things are always happening. Yeah. That film is just riddled with interesting things. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I have another one. Both Go films display massive wads of cash. Yes. Uh, and and like money, money is the problem in both films. Because yes. it's like, well, both films feature characters who need money in order to achieve what they're trying to get. Uh, and then the kids inadvertently run into like a hundred thousand bucks or whatever and hundred dollar bills. Uh, and then um, in Fitzcarraldo, he like gets uh, a backer, and also his uh, romantic interest is very wealthy. Yeah, he's, he's able to procure funds to go on this crazy endeavor. So yeah, both both films sort of like are built on this like financial pivot point in the plot. Yeah, if I can expand on that, and I will. Good. Both films explore uh, how like money basically fuels colonialism as an inevitability. Yeah. Because I have all this money so I can get this boat, so I can build this opera house, so I can get this rubber. At the time of the filming, also at Fitzcarraldo, there was like a big oil and gas thing that was going on at the time. And there's a lot of people who were coming in and trying to like get their oil and stuff. So they, yeah, so they, in real life, they were battling that. But then in the movie, it's Fitzcarraldo is this rubber baron guy who's coming in. And it's like, yeah, I can take all of your things, but I want to do this weird ass stunt yeah. As well. Uh, and then also in Christmas in Wonderland, uh, when the kids are get the money and they're going through it in the background is the Hudson Bay Company sign. Wow. The West Edmonton Mall is, and the Hudson Bay Company is this giant monument of capitalist, colonialist kind of nightmare land, you know? Yeah. May I build onto your point? No. <laughs> Both films. No, I'm done. No, stop. <laughs> Both films are sort of predicated on uh, natural resources as a major factor for things happening. So like Edmonton is in Alberta and Alberta's main industry is oil and gas. Yes. And that's why the Patrick Swayze character moves with his family to Edmonton. But he then is immediately laid off. Yeah. If it's crawled to rubber trees in the rubber industry is why there are sort of like uh, uh, colonial people who are like really exploiting the indigenous population and also the environment yeah. and causing ecological havoc. So both, yeah, and both films I think don't really take stock or criticize the ecological implications no. of natural resources being taken out of the earth. No. Nope. They don't care. 
They don't seem to be even... Both films ambivalent. They don't seem to be critical in any way of any of that kind of stuff happening in the background of all this. But in, yeah, Christmas in Wonderland is never questioned. It's almost treated as like, this is just reality. Don't don't even question it. Mm -hmm. We all go shopping on Christmas, even though we don't have money. That's kind of the problem of the film, but it's also like, well, we have to buy stuff. For some Actually, reason, and the kids are all are all like little pieces of trash. Like they, they're so spoiled. I would never buy them anything if they were my kids. No, like when they're in the van, like what 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 did he bribe you with? And they all yeah. have a thing that they got bribed with, which is such yeah. a disturbing thing. It's actually, you know, what's funny is the film is very unwholesome and uncritical in the way it depicts the sort of like social class of the 21st century. Yeah, and just like growing up in like the suburban world and being like i want things all the time as a child because that's how i'm going to grow up and i want my parents to get me those things or their bad parents even though their parents are going through their own shit and have their own troubles and are like working on their career and their personal lives that doesn't matter the, all these kids have in their perspective is the sort of material world yeah which is interesting and this film doesn't say anything about that no even at the end What's what's shocking is they don't change. They don't not want things by the end. They're they're just like, wow, we really kicked butt. They got those, yeah. those bad guys, didn't we? Like Chris Kattan, that guy sucks. And then they're rewarded with like all of the things that they wanted in the first place. Yeah. And they never learn anything. And then the dad gets a job and they're just like, oh, life is easy. And then they walk away. It's interesting because I think Christmas as a season is such a fascinating thing because it's not something that anybody ever really questions. The Christmas happens. We don't question... The fact that we, we're we not really celebrating Jesus. We just kind of do all of these like traditions because that's what we're supposed to do at Christmas time. We yeah. put up the tree for some reason. We put boxes of stuff under this tree that we have decorated for some reason. Mm-hmm. Like nobody really like stops to think why you're doing any of that stuff. For certainly not Jesus. No. Definitely it's... not Jesus because also most people know that that wasn't actually Jesus's birthday anyway. Yeah. So that's kind of weird. Yeah. Um, it's super weird. But then Christmas movies... Don't question any of that stuff even further to the point where they just present you with what you expect. And then you're by the end, you're just like, well, my heart was warmed because <laughs> these kids didn't learn anything. And then Santa basically was a deus ex machina. Yeah. Just like gave them a job, gave them all the presents that they wanted, brought the mom home. According to the lore of Christmas in Wonderland, Santa built the mall also. Oh, yeah. And the mall is the North Pole. It's like a North Pole. Yeah. So there's like a lot of weird like <laughs> yeah. Christmas fetishization i guess that the film does yeah so on that note both films have uh unlikable characters who don't learn anything uh yeah all of the little kids in the movie are super unlikable especially the oldest kid who is a real jerk to everybody mm-hmm. and he sees that girl in the bikini and then you're just like supposed to care about this stupid plot line that he has now even though he's, can i piggyback on i'll let you finish but yeah. what you just said is what my next similarity is so both films are feature unlikable characters who don't learn anything because the kids don't learn anything as we established. And then Fitzgeraldo himself does this giant stunt, never questions himself. Mm-hmm. And then at the end, he accomplishes it and the movie's over. Yeah. And you never get any sense of his own like journey. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't have to, like, characters in movies don't have to learn or change as long as somebody in the movie is changing. Yeah. yeah. And that's kind of the same with Christmas in Wonderland. Even the, the crooks, we don't get a sense that they learned anything. And all of the main characters didn't really learn anything because Santa gave them what they wanted. And uh, arguably, they're both terribly written films. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. As I understand it, Werner Herzog's script writing process is he just kind of like writes very quickly, uh, like an outline of the movie, and then that's what they go off of. Oh, 
That's rough. It's not really like in screenplay format or anything. It's just kind of like however Werner wants to write it is how it's written. Interesting. Yeah. Very uh, inefficient. Unsurprising, I would say. Also. No, no, it's yeah, it's unsurprising. So both films depict men behaving in a predatory way. Yes. So in Fitzcarraldo, uh, the the like chef on board brings two female assistants, and then the whole crew is just sort of like groveling over them and uh, being gross, frankly, yeah. with, with these women. And in Christmas in Wonderland, the oldest brother sees this woman in the water park in a bikini and then runs full speed through a door, hops over a balcony to chase her to just talk to her. Yeah, while he's wearing clothes. While he's fully clothed in a water park where everyone's half naked. And he didn't pay to get in, it seems like. He didn't. Because if you he know didn't. how West Edmonton Mall works, you don't just walk in. You have to pay to get, you have to get past like a counter. Yeah, and also when you have all your clothes on, you look like a fucking weirdo yeah. in this water park. But he, he burst in because he, he like felt that he could just like run up to her and talk to her. But then he talked to the wrong person. Yeah. And then they meet later. But it's like a very like intense, creepy version of like approaching somebody to be yes. like, I'm interested in you romantically. Somehow it works out for that kid though. Yeah. they And they're both from L.A. They're both from LA. Oh, is this because they bond over their mutual hatred of the city that they live in? Yeah. The city that we live in. The city Wait we call home. Yeah. <laughs> those bastards. <laughs> Oh, I got one more. Oh, yeah. Well, keep going, man. Both films depict uh, sort of like undefined spirituality. So there's the mall ghost. Yes. Which you later learn is just a man named Wolf and a dog named Bob. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And then in the river, in the Amazon, the indigenous people believe that there's a spirit that's going to arrive on a white boat. Yeah. And Klaus Kinski kind of fits the bill. And so he thinks that that's how he's being able to manipulate these people into helping him so both films right. sort of like have this like very um yeah like spiritual like angle for a very short period of time in the film yes in christmas in wonderland it's the mall ghost and in rich Crawler, they refer to him as the white god yeah. but in christmas in wonderland can you could say that santa is the white god also so yeah. there's like another level to that and then also back to Fitzcarraldo. Uh, Werner Herzog himself confirmed that the reason why the natives helped, because it doesn't seem clear, really, uh, they thought that the white god would help them rid the forest of evil spirits. Both of these like dangerous areas, that being the Amazon and West Edmonton Mall, <laughs> are filled with evil spirits. Yeah. A side note to that is um, Fitzcarraldo, you would say that that character probably would be lacking in empathy because he's just like a weird rich guy who is like exploiting hundreds upon hundreds of people mm -hmm. in like a foreign country yeah. that he's just entering and forcing them to do this dumb stuff. But he's actually more sympathetic than the children in this, in Christmas in Wonderland. Cause like, remember there's that part where Carmen Electra is dangling from the top of West Edmonton mall. Like the little kid is torturing her for some reason. Yeah. Yeah. She <laughs> pre, she plans to smash the window so that she knows I guess that Carmen Electra is going to walk on it yeah. and then and smash through it. And then she doesn't do anything to help Carmen Electra. She just taunts her with money and then she falls potentially to her death, but she survives. And is conveniently over the, the yeah. like sea lion exhibit. Yeah. And Chris Catan also almost slides into a thing with man eating sharks and we never find out how he escapes also. Oh yeah. But yeah. And the kids have like no concern for the lives. Of course they're robbers. This is just like a outdated Home Alone archetype. 
that they're just facing. And you're just like, okay, we recognize that we're just supposed to just not care about the lives of these criminals. But yeah. Also, what's their backstory? There's uh, obviously Carmen Electra was taking advantage of those two. Probably very intense power dynamic. Yeah, it's the whole thing. Really goes to show you can have great cast members. Like this movie has a pretty awesome cast considering what it's about. Yeah. But it's real dead. We really don't know anything about any of these characters and therefore we don't care about any of them um, anymore. I think I think I'm all maxed out. There's abuse of wildlife in both films. There's yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, if you want to explain it, you can. No, that's it. Oh, it's yeah. just like abuse of wildlife in both films. Totally. Just the way that West Ham and Ma handles animals. I'm uh, sure that's abusive oh, on some level. Oh, it is. It's it's aquatic abuse in both films, too. There's you know, also... Both, both films have characters surrounded by trees. Yes. So, Fitzcarraldo, obviously, there's the jungle. And in... The concrete jungle that is West Edmonton Mall. There are Christmas trees, more trees per capita than any other time of the year. Yeah, there are lots of trees in that movie, considering the context. I feel like Christmas in Wonderland was almost a callback to Fitzgerald, though. Dare I say? I'm pretty sure was, James Orr is that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah, was was trying to emulate Werner Herzog anymore? This is a stretch. There's a part in Fitzgerald. <laughs> There's a part in Fitzcarraldo where they, when they first encounter the natives, uh, they play, they're playing this pan flute song. And it wasn't present in the film, but I have been in West Edmonton Mall when there's people doing trying to sell those pan flute CDs. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. So I was like... That's, what a stretch that is. But, but pan flute c- CDs are for sale in, most, in a lot of malls. Yeah. No, it's a thing. You're right. So, you're right. Uh, my last similarity is my name is not listed in the credits of either film. So. <laughs> <laughs> Disappointing. <laughs> I guess that's the similarity between literally all films. I don't think my name is in the credits of a single film. Yeah, but you worked on one of them. I did work you know? on one of these. Yeah. And that is one way that the both films are different. I didn't work on Fitzcarraldo. Yeah. I worked on Christmas at Wonderland. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, I think we did a pretty good job. This is a great, pretty extensive. Like thematically, both films are similar. They they truly are. They yeah. kind of like unquestioned. They don't question capitalism or colonialism or any of that stuff. Uh huh. That's kind of wild because no one would ever really say that about Christmas in Wonderland. No, absolutely. And not. only yeah. by putting it side by side with Fitzcarraldo do we get to shine that light on it. Fascinating. You know what's great about this podcast is it makes me. Makes me watch movies like it's homework. Is that good? Uh, it's good for someone like me. I'm uh, tardy. Is that the word? Uh, lazy. Yeah, lazy. Yeah. yeah. Uh, you're rarely late. Lethargic. Yeah, yeah you're I lethargic. am rarely late. Okay, fair enough. Uh, yeah, no, it's so I'm a lethargic cinephile. If if ever there was one. <clears throat> <clears throat> <laughs> Are you I'm right? sorry. No, sorry. My dog was choking on a bone. <laughs> How do you know what that sounds like? Have you never watched a dog choke on a bone? No. Standing idly by, letting the dog <laughs> slide towards death. Yeah, but it'll it'll sort it out. It'll sort itself yeah, out. Yeah, it's got yeah. it's got mucus. Yeah, that and dog breath. It's not the first time a dog has choked on a bone. Yeah. Uh, anyways. Herzog is stranded in the jungle with a 300-ton steamship that won't move, and time is running out. He needs money to move the ship, but no one will invest unless the ship moves first. Behind his back, some of the actors are talking about getting out while the getting is good. Only a few of the cast, crew, and Indians believe in his dream anymore. 
even Herzog is beginning to wonder. Of course we are challenging nature itself and it hits back. It just hits back, that's all. And that's grandiose about it and we have to, to accept that it is much stronger than we are. Kinski always says it's full of erotic elements. I don't see it so much erotic, I see it more full of obscenity. It's just, and nature here is vile and base. I wouldn't see anything erotical here. I would see fornication and asphyxiation and choking and fighting for survival and growing and just rotting away. Of course, there's a lot of misery, but it is the same misery that is all around us. The trees here are in misery and the birds are in misery. I don't think they, they sing, they just screech in pain. Okay, bye. <laughs> okay, bye. <laughs>